bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> I grew up, as many folks here did, in a Christian home. Um, went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night prayer meeting. Um, and all was good until I reached kind of a senior in high school. As a senior in high school, I began to have doubts about this whole thing. Did God really exist? Was Jesus really the Son of God? Was Christianity the only way? All those questions kind of came at me at once. And then I went off to college, and the professor in my first class in college said, I'm not trying to make you doubt now, but plant the seed of doubt that will make you doubt later on. I go, thanks a lot. And so when the time came up to talk about these different aspects of the Apostles' Creed, I jumped at this one because I think this portion of the Apostles' Creed answers many of those questions and doubts that I had. Today we sang about Christ's death, His resurrection. Paul, as we mentioned in what Becky read this morning, Paul said that, for I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Peter, when he gave the talk, the first real sermon post the ascension of Christ, to the people out in front of him who were there for Pentecost. And Acts said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. John, in John 10, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay, down, I lay it down, meaning his life on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It is now common for people to believe that Christianity is a very bloody religion, often this blood sacrifice, and we are condemned because this is just terrible. We are quoted as being supporters of cosmic child abuse in the death of Jesus, and that wasn't the case. Jesus said he lays it down on his own accord. Paul said to the Galatians to boast in one thing, boast in the cross of Christ. And that's what we're talking about today. We, we had the Lord's Supper. This was to commemorate Jesus' last supper with His disciples. So His disciples met in the upper room and they had this meal, this Passover meal with Jesus. And as Adam said at the end, he says, this is my body. This is my blood broken and spilled for you. After that, they left that upper room and they went out to the, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went to pray and He took Peter and James and John with them and told them to stay awake as Jesus was praying in great agony. 
And while he was in that garden, Judas took that opportunity to betray, betray Jesus. He led the group of Jewish leaders, the council members, the rulers of the, of the, of the group came and they arrested Jesus and they took him off. And they took him before the high priest. And the high priest said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you said so, which means yes. And this prompted them to say, okay, he deserves death. And they took him to Pilate. And that's where we stand. So if you read and you look in your Bibles, if you have them, look at Luke 23. We're going to read most of that passage. It's relatively long. But it gives us the whole story. So the Jewish people brought Jesus before Pilate. Then the whole, count, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is himself a Christ, king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout Judea from Galilee to even this place. And Pilate saw a way out. At that time, he says, well, this guy's from Galilee. He needs to go to Herod. Herod was the king of that area. And so he was under Herod's authority. So they sent Jesus to Herod. And Herod was eager to see Jesus because he heard this talk about Jesus doing miracles. And he wanted to have some sign from Jesus before him. But Herod found no guilt in this man that deserves death and sent him back to Pilate. This is a turf war. Send him back to Pilate. I don't want anything to do with this. So he comes back to Pilate. And he says in verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges, of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they cried out together, away with this man and release us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in that city, and for murder, Pilate adjusts them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found no, in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their man, demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown to prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they've asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Serena, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed with him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning, them to, but, turning them, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren 
and the wombs that have never born and breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We are indeed we, in, uh, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, that's noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowd that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. They took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. I was um, spending some time with a, a high school kid who um, began to doubt Christianity his parents were Christians and they were, they were worried about their son who was going astray. And they asked me to spend some time with them. And we went spent some time with him for a, a number of weeks going through all his objections, answering all his scientific objections, how in the Bible and science can be consistent with one another and answered all these questions that you think people raise for why they may doubt Christianity. But I really did not make any headway until I read Isaiah 53 to him. And we're going to read that. Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord, Lord, Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one to whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken by the transgressions of my people, for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. I read this to that young fellow, and he said, what? That's in the Bible? I've never heard that before. This kid who had been from to church as a child growing up through all these years had never made this connection between the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah into what took place at the crucifixion of Jesus. This went a long way to answer my questions and my doubt that this is just one of many, many prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to what took place with Jesus. And it's something that he never made that connection. And it's the only thing that made a difference to him. Now, I'd like to say that he committed his life to Christ at that point, but that's not the case. He said, committing my life to Christ means commitment. And I'm going off to college, and I'm going to have some fun. So I may think about that at another time. Sorry to say. Now, the other part of this part of the creed is that it stand, it's taking place in history. When we mention these, that Jesus was tried under Pontius Pilate, that puts a stamp on a date at which this took place. You know, in 2010, on Larry King Live, there was the president of the American Atheists. This is a group of atheists. And on that broadcast, on that uh, program, she said, there is no secular evidence for the existence of Jesus. Now, how foolish can that be? 
<laughs> it's like saying, well, I don't believe in the Holocaust. Or I don't believe in the moon landing. I think it was all fake. It's utterly ridiculous. And this part of the creed takes that information and puts it into history. We know that Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea. He was a Roman governor. We know that he was governor from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. There is a definite time period when Pilate was the governor, and we know that there was a definite time when Pilate was responsible for this trial of Jesus. So we have it refined to that area. Rufinus, who was a 5th century writer, wrote this. Those who handed down the creed showed great wisdom in emphasizing the actual date at which these things happened so that there may be no chance of any uncertainty or vagueness upon the stability of the tradition. For a long time, people even doubted whether Pilate was truly existed or that he was the governor of this area. There is no physical evidence that he ever resided in Jerusalem until 1961. In 1961, a group of Italian archaeologists discovered a stone. This stone had been repurposed. They found it in some steps. But it used to be a cornerstone for a building and it had an inscription by Pilate as a tribute to the Caesar. And that was the first evidence secular evidence, physical, archaeological evidence that Pilate existed. And so up until that point, people said, well, that creed is, you don't have to believe it because we're not sure Pilate existed. But there's more than that. Josephus, a Jewish historian, mentions Pilate and mentions Jesus. Tacius, another, a Roman historian, mentions Pilate's government and mentions Jesus in these same texts. The public nature of Jesus' trial, suffering, the crucifixion, makes it impossible for anyone to say that this didn't really take place. How could that atheist of the American Atheist Association ever claim such nonsense? And the reason is moral. If you can deny that Jesus existed. You can deny Christianity all its implications. If you can deny that he died, you can deny all those implications. It was in 1986 that the Journal of the American Medical Association came out with an article that cost a great degree of... Um, discussion. And it was an article about the crucifixion of Jesus in the American Journal of the American Medical Association. And it was by a pathologist and a graphic illustrator and a Methodist minister. And went on to detail all the aspects of what took place during crucifixion. And it's, if anybody wants to read this, worth reading. It's really quite informative. But the sum total of that is Let me read this. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment 
that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. It was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually re was reserved only for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. And the last statement is, modern medical interpretation uh, of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when he was taken down from the cross. So even at the time of Jesus, the Jews wanted to have the story that Jesus really didn't die. The disciples took his body away or he had swooned. He was just, he was just sick. Modern medical evidence says no, he was dead when they took him down from the cross. And that's crucial. Jesus suffered physically on the cross and he also suffered spiritually. The scorn of his men that he came to save. The people that he came, his own people, Turned him away. That Jesus died is a simple matter of history. That Christ died for our sins is the gospel itself. What does all this mean? I think it can be summed up in one word, and that's propitiation. Now, this is not a word that everybody uses daily. Um, in fact, when they were translating the Greek New Testament into English, they had to make a word up for the Greek word that this represents. Because we didn't have a word that would sum up the knowledge of what took place at this time. And the word is propitiation. We're going to talk about that. The whole significance of the cross can be, can be summed up with that one word. Now, most of us, don't have a real clear idea what that means. I'd like to quote um, John um, G.I. Packer in this, and it says, as our sacrifice for sins, it was propitiation. That is, a means of quenching God's personal penile wrath against us by blotting out our sins from his sight. Paul says in uh, Romans, Romans 3, 25-26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over for our former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. John says in 1 John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to the propitiation of our, sin, of our sins. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 17-18, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation pro for, for the sins of His people. For because himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Now I have to admit that this next part I really kind of borrowed from J.I. Packer. It says, one thing, and this, if you're going to take notes, take down these verses, because I think they're worth considering. As our propitiation, it was reconciliation. Like the making of peace 
for us with an offended, estranged, angry creator. Propitiation is reconciliation. In Hebrews 5, 9 through 11, it says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through, Je- through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As our reconciliation, the cross was our redemption. Redemption is rescue from bondage and misery by the payment of a price. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him you have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be saved, but not to serve, but to be served. Let me start again. For even the Son of Man came not to be be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. As our redemption, it was also our victory over all the hostile powers that kept us and wanted to keep us still in sin and out of God's favor. Colossians 2, 13-15 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ultimately leading to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Propitiation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. <coughs> redemption and victory. This is the meaning of the cross. For those who have put their trust in Jesus, it's our propitiation. Boy, we're early. And I'm going to end there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we all would understand